Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. This is an essay I'm very excited to get into. It's by a friend of mine, Dr. Angela Voss, and it is on scrying from Occult World. The first opening quote she has is from Agrippa, of course. Imagination is nearer to the substance of the soul than the sense is. And then scrying with a quick definition from the English word to descry, descry, which means to catch sight of something difficult to discern. And so she begins... Scrying has been variously defined as the faculty of seeing visions in a smooth surface or clear, deep, or both. And that is from a fellow named Besterman. Or, alternately, an occult method of obtaining oracular visions in water, glass, or crystal from Tyson. And... Quote, the deliberate act of perceiving events that lie beyond the range of the physical senses by using the agents of the unconscious mind. And that is again from Tyson. As such, scrying is a form of clairvoyance or cryptosthesia. Note, subconscious perception of occurrences not ordinarily perceivable or perceptible to the senses, or, quote, a mode of paranormal perception such as clairvoyance. And that comes from the medical dictionary. And as it would usually also involve the interpretation of the meaning of such visions, it can be considered to be a form of divination. Again, that is from Tyson, who defines scrying as divination only if it involves the unconscious mind, i.e. some form of subliminal intuition, and is not merely deduction according to a set of rules. The idea of a mirror or shining surface revealing an occult dimension, an alternative world which cannot be seen via sense perception alone, but which requires an intuitive second sight to reveal it, leads us to question what is being revealed, how it is being revealed, and why humans have the capacity to see beyond the veil of consensual reality. The silvery shiny and translucent surfaces of crystals, mirrors, or water remind us of the moon, poetically associated with the role of mediator between the elemental life on earth and the immaterial life of the spirit. In a receptive state, it seems possible for the scryer to gain access to this other realm, which reveals itself in shapes, images, and symbols to be deciphered by the conscious mind. It is not my intention in this chapter to give a history of scrying or a description of its various techniques, as these topics are covered in other sources. And an excellent other source I will get into is my friend Chris Bennett's Libra 420 that has an entire chapter looking at the role of scrying mirrors and other such tools and how frequently and commonly their practice involved entheogens. Suffice it to say that its many variants have been practiced at all times and in all cultures. Two of its most famous exponents being Nostradamus, 1503-1566, and Dr. John Dee, 1527-1608 or 9, with his medium, of course, Edward Kelly. And a note regarding the common uh, 
appearance of scrying across cultures, Besterman lists uh, ketoptromancy, mirror, crystallomancy, crystal, cyclicomancy, cup of water or wine. I myself focus my practice on a copper scrying bowl like Nostradamus did that I hammered out of copper myself in, when I was a kid in the 90s. Gastromancy, marks on belly. Hydromancy, water, river, lake. Lecanomancy, water in basin or open receptacle. Lithomancy, stone. Onychomancy, fingernails. Pegomancy, spring water. Plus any other method using reflective ob- objects or precious stones or metals. Tyson adds telepathy, dowsing, and psychometry. Also note that Dee and Kelly believed they were summoning autonomous spirits via the famous showstone, in whose black obsidian surface Kelly saw visions of angels who communicated to him in a complex language. And the sources there are Dr. Harkness, Suster, and Zioni. Zioni, Zioni, I never say his name right. And of course, Deborah Harkness was in uh, the same PhD program as myself with uh, Nicholas back in the day. Um, this is a, an error um, that Dr. Voss has here, uh, unfortunately, thinking that the showstone was the black obsidian mirror, which actually it wasn't. It was the crystal ball was the showstone, the black obsidian mirror. Of course, they never used in their Enochian angelic scrying work, as far as we know. Dr. Voss says, I am more interested, however, in exploring the metaphysics of scrying, in locating the practice within an epistemological context, that is, pertaining to our sense of knowledge and what we can know. And to this end, I will highlight some of the avenues by which we may approach the subject of clairvoyant and divinatory knowing in ways which honor its verity and integrity. Most academic studies, of course, of scrying begin with uh, faulty assumptions and preface their work on <laughs> the idea that it's all nonsense without looking into the cultural context in which uh, it may be relevant. I will first of all address the nature of divination itself, and then consider theories of subliminal mind and cognitive imagination in relation to scrying. In my view, it is not sufficient to approach such an activity from a purely psychophysiological perspective, a legacy of post-enlightenment material science, but rather we should situate it within a discourse of liminality, poetics, and super-rational paradigms of perception if we wish to gain insight into its modus operandi. Very well said there by Dr. Voss. Excellent. Divination. It is all too easy to marginalize divinatory knowledge as superstitious, irrational, or fictitious from a standpoint of an objective rationalist who fears usurpation by the dark tide of mud of occultism, as Freud put it. Also see that that reference is from Jung, 1961. And for such a rationalist, even the spiritual science of visionaries such as Rudolf Steiner or Henry Corbin, Henri Corbin, I guess, for whom research into transpersonal reality involved rigorous inquiry into interior experience, is likely to be critiqued as religionist. I've covered this a lot in the podcast, the religionist critique and movement of Eliade and them. Contemporary scholarship on divination, however, has certainly progressed from the self-congratulatory rationalism of various historians of science and anthropologists of the past with authors such as Patrick Curry, 
Jeffrey Cornelius and Barbara Tedlock, all practitioners as well as academics, addressing head-on issues of divinatory phenomenology, ontology, and epistemology in a wide interdisciplinary inquiry. They all expose divination as an essentially ubiquitous and creative or co-creative process whose rationale is effective and metaphorical rather than causal. Divining involves the derivation of meaning from signs, and this metaphorical seeing is a fundamental principle of esotericism in the West. As Plotinus, 204 to 270 CE, reminds the reader of his second Ennead, quote, all teams with symbol. The wise man is the man who in any one thing sees another. Adding that this is a common everyday experience, that's from Plotinus, the Enneads 2, 3.7, also see 3.1.6. In our positivist society, it tends to be overlooked that this kind of seeing may produce valuable knowledge for the participant, the bottom line of truth always being the natural physical causation in the underlying medium. Signification is regarded as an arbitrary and unverifiable leap of an overactive imagination, and the, quote, seeing of one thing as another, pareidolia, as either a useful tool for psychological diagnosis or nothing more than an amusing coincidence. Note, it is beyond the remit of this article to examine the approaches of cognitive psychology to paranormal experience, but pareidolia is normally classed as an hallucination or illusion. However, it is not problematic for diviners to hold both rational and symbolic levels of perception as equally valid in their respective cognitive domains. In fact, in esoteric epistemology, intuitive cognition, or the intuitive intellect, as Plato would call it, is logically prior to discursive reasoning, as it is an innate faculty of knowing in the soul, which is intimately connected to its own ground of being. Note the principal sources for Platonic epistemology are his divided line metaphor and allegory of the cave in Republic 6. It is this faculty which transcends subject-object duality as it exists beyond time and space as we know them. What then is divination? Cornelius has defined it as a work where human being submits intimate concern to a primordial intelligence or reality that goes under various names, such as, quote, spirit-like or divine or a named god. See Cornelius, 2007. That's his book, The Moment of Astrology, Origins and Divination. Or no, it's his book, From Primitive Mentality to Hecate, the unique case in astrology and divination, in seeing with different eyes, essays in astrology and divination, edited by P. Curry and Angela Voss. And Tedlock defines diviners as, quote, experts who embrace the notion of moving from a boundless to a bounded realm of existence in their practice. A divination is both functional and performative, always constituting a unique case whose truth is realized in lived experience and is never mere speculation or correctness of propositions. In its authentic form, divination involves taking moral responsibility for actions and decisions. It is not primarily about predicting the future 
although it may involve prophetic utterance, but about asking for guidance about right action, about how to follow the path of good fortune in one's life, for destiny is negotiable on the level of human affairs. Note, as W. Varde Fowler points out, the inaugural art in ancient Rome never provided an answer to the question, what is going to happen? But only to that more religious one, are the deities willing that we should do this or that? From the religious experience of the Roman people, Macmillan, 1911, page 298. In Neoplatonic and theosophical contexts, as well as many New Age ones, divination has the teleological aim to cultivate self-awareness and raise consciousness. Teleological, of course, refers to the purpose of something and where, where we're going, the telos, the result of something. In the understanding that the human soul has an innate duality, a human and a divine aspect, which need to be brought into single focus. The higher part, according to the Platonists, is aligned with the all-seeing divine mind, and therefore has the power to alter what may appear to be fated to the more materially bound level of cognition. This power, whether it is conceived as internal or external to the diviner, is sought and possibly embodied through a ritual action such as scrying. As the image arising is interpreted as a message from the spirits, gods, or higher self, the divinatory act allows the present moment to reveal itself, as it were, and within this moment the future is implicit and will flow according to the choices made. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do, since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week, or six dollars a month, or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. In the act of gazing into a crystal ball or a shiny surface, an abaisement de niveau mental may take place in which shapes or forms appear and assume significance as omens. That is a term used by Jung following Pierre Janet to refer to a relaxed state of consciousness prior to using the act of imagination to access elements of the unconscious mind. The visions may be either unbidden or bidden. Omnia oblativa and omnia impetrativa. See Cornelius 2010 on that. That is either actively sought through ritual intention or spontaneously observed without any preparation or expectation of their appearance. As an example of the former, Crystal Addy draws our attention to the tradition of cataptromancy in ancient Greece, where shiny surfaces or mirrors were used for divination. According to Pausanias, at the sanctuary of Demeter at Patras, rituals for the prognosis of illness involved lowering a mirror into a spring. After various ritual activities, the images in the mirror would reveal whether the person inquired about was alive or dead. As an example of the latter, Pausanias again describes a mirror on the wall of a temple at Lake Kisara. Apparently, when the visitor looked into it, they did not see themselves. 
but only the distant statues of deities which were brought into sharp focus. Here we have a concrete metaphor for any scrying practice which aims to reveal aspects of an invisible world to normal sight. The two modes of rational, human, and revelatory, divine knowledge in turn relate to two distinct forms of divinatory practice, artificial and natural. In other words, some things could be ascertained through inductive rituals requiring speculation, inference, or deduction, but others were directly revealed through visions, dreams, or direct symbolic insight. Tedlock has termed these forms representational and presentational symbolism and notes, quote, In representational symbolism, specific intentional inference is paramount. The medium of expression is straightforward, and inductive reality is dominant. In presentational symbolism, meaning emerges directly from experiential immersion in the expressive or emotional patterns of the symbolic medium that is grasped intuitively. In practice, it is not so easy to differentiate between two modes as perception and interpretation are often instantaneously intertwined. But as Cornelius has pointed out, post-Enlightenment thought, quote, has removed the ontological necessity of the relation between reason and revelation, and with it, the ground of divination. In other words, the notion that all rational analysis is ultimately grounded in a supra-rational, noetic, or deeply intuitive insight is no longer considered valid. In an ontological inversion of cognitive value, the material world has assumed the status of ultimate reality, whilst metaphysically speaking, it is contained and governed by far more real spiritual law. For further on the ontological inversion, see Milne and also Corbin, 1964. It is illuminating to view this duality in terms of the functions of the brain hemispheres, as researched by Ian Gilchrist. In his pioneering book, The Master and His Emissary, he posits that the left brain of rationality and abstraction has become severed from the right brain's intuitive visionary and holistic capacity, and is no longer its emissary, but strives to become the master, if not the tyrant. McGilchrist concludes that it is, in fact, the imagination which provides a bridge between the two modes, which can be equated with, but not reduced to, the connective function of the corpus callosum in the brain. Jeffrey Cripple follows this line of inquiry in his suggestion that scholars and researchers of religious or paranormal experience should develop their capacity for engagement with transrational, transpersonal, or sacred reality, as well as their critical minds, an argument which I have also pursued elsewhere. So, how can we characterize the kind of revelatory knowledge gleaned via the image in a crystal bowl or a pool of water? It would appear to embody a sympathetic resonance, or consubstantiality, or momentary identity of substance between observer and observed. The omen, the vision, is at the same time the numinous other, which is also implicated in the event it points to in the world. The omen is unique in that it is only an omen for the one who sees it to whose life it has direct relevance, and this sense of being meant is often attributed to a demonic 
agency as it resists all our usual categories of understanding. However, it may also be attributed to an unconscious dimension of the human mind, and to this theory I will now turn. Dr. Voss brings up a very important point we talk about in the spiritual landscape a lot, which is the idea of receiving messages and then forcing them on other people without request. It's, it's considered a very abusive thing to get a, an omen and then approach a stranger or just to lay it at someone's feet. You think thinking that what you've received about them is important and you have to tell them. This is a very unethical thing to do, downright evil, really. Um, and it's uh, definitely a form of spiritual abuse to force your spiritual visions about other people upon them. It's not healthy at all. Subliminal Mind The suggestion of the 19th century psychic researchers and psychoanalysts that the human mind contained unconscious powers which could produce all manner of precognitive and telepathic information and that these powers were open to rational investigation was a radical one. And it continues to inform parapsychological approaches today. But such a view strains to accommodate either a magical cosmology of autonomous spirit agency on its own terms or the validity of Gnostic insight, as it remains firmly bound to a spirit of scientific inquiry. William James, 1842 to 1910, and if you haven't read his Varieties of Religious Experience, you should, triumphantly reported on the rigor of the investigative activities of the Society for Psychical Research, founded in 1882, praising F.W.H. Myers' theories of the subliminal self, an ultra-marginal or unmanifested part of human consciousness responsible for precognitive or telepathic events. In his essay, What Psychical Research Has Accomplished, James gives the example of a Miss X, who, on consulting her crystal ball, saw printed characters telling of the death of an acquaintance. On perusing the Times from the previous day, she saw the identical announcement in the newspaper, although she was not aware of having read it before her scrying session. With the theory of the subliminal mind, events such as this could now be explained coherently with no need to resort to supernatural explanations, for such information could have been unconsciously remembered. But other phenomena were more difficult to explain. For instance, James, Myers, and the, their colleagues struggled to incorporate into this paradigm their experience of mediumship, which often demonstrated a tangible and inexplicable presence in the seance room, which was difficult to attribute to subliminal mind, you think? As James famously remarked in this essay on witnessing the skills of the medium Mrs. Piper, quote, if you wish to upset the law that all crows are black, you must not seek to show that no crows are. It is enough if you prove one single crow to be white. My own white crow is Mrs. Piper. <laughs> James attempts to construct a paradigm of hallucination, which embraces everything from the powers of suggestion to hearing the warning voice of a deceased relative in a time of danger, but cannot avoid the suspicion that in the latter case there must be something else going on. In fact, he cannot resist the speculation that the theosophists may be more correct in their theories of autonomous astral bodies. For the psychical researchers, it was enough that scryers or mediums could peer into a supersensory realm not bound by laws of time and space. 
into an unconscious mind which could assess information from a mysterious source, yet which needed a vehicle of words or images. Myers observed that scryers were not in a hypnotized state, but scrutinized their visions in complete conscious detachment. He concluded that crystal gazing is, quote, an empirical method of developing internal vision, of externalizing pictures which are associated with changes in the sensorial tracts of the brain, due partly to internal stimuli and partly to stimuli which may come from minds external to the scryer's own. It thus may involve telepathic activity, and Myers appears to leave it open as to whether these external minds are embodied or not. Besterman follows a harder line and sees no evidence for spirit activity, concluding that, quote, scrying is a method of bringing into the consciousness of the scryer by means of a speculum through one or more of his senses the content of his subconsciousness, of rendering him more susceptible to the reception of telepathically transmitted concepts and of bringing into operation a latent and unknown faculty of perception. The contemporary scryer and scholar Donald Tyson takes a more radical view. He uses the metaphor of the unconscious mind as a computer which can pick up information and convey it through an image on a screen. Such images might be clear and concise, such as the words seen by Miss X, or shady and symbolic, therefore requiring interpretation. He calls them sensory metaphors, which, like dream images, may point to an important message for the recipient. The computer tunes in, as it were, to autonomous presences from other frequencies which might be experienced on an inner level as form, voice, or touch. Note, in Tyson, of interest here is the more objective phenomenon of instrumental transcommunication, ITC, the supposed direct communication of spirits via technological means, radio, telephone, television, or computer. The scrying mirror here, he claims, acts as a reflector of images communicated by discarnate spirits to the scryer's inner mind, which projects them onto its surface, in the same way as automatic writing or drawing. We note with interest that in Meyer's supposed post-mortem communication via the medium Geraldine Cummins, he confirms that indeed the minds external to the scryer's own are not incarnate. From his position on the other side, he explains that the inner mind of the medium is like soft wax which receives the thoughts of the discarnate being, but it must then find the appropriate words or images in which to clothe it. Quote, it is true that we communicate by pictures or images, by signs which the deeper mind of the sensitive apprehends, and sometimes we may convey by a sign or symbol a name or word unknown to the medium. It would be well for you to note that what you call normal consciousness means the raising up of the barriers between your mind and another human mind. But behind all that, there is among human beings a deeper self, a subjective mentality that can trespass into the domain of other subliminal selves that meets with few barriers. And there you have some words from a discarnate spirit itself explaining how all this works to Miss Cummins. Whatever the reader may make of that, we are certainly left with an unresolvable ambiguity around the potential of the subliminal mind to embrace the intelligent other however it is conceived. 
the imaginal world. Myers draws our attention to the importance of the symbolic image as an interface between two dimensions or levels of consciousness. And this leads us now to consider traditions in which the imagination itself is regarded as cognitive. The psychical researchers were aiming for scientific respectability through adopting a rational, methodically thorough examination of non-ordinary consciousness. On the other hand, we find the esoteric stream of wisdom in the West concerned with a mode of cognition which transcends rationality per se and engages with an epistemology of transcendent intuition derived from the platonic notion of intellect as the path to gnosis or wisdom. The Neoplatonic theory, which illuminates our theme of scrying, hinges on the understanding I mentioned earlier that the sensible world is a natural image or reflection of the divine or intelligible world which interpenetrates it. Here we find again the crucial distinction between artificial and natural images. According to Plotinus, artistic or sculptural images would be artificial, representing a perfected nature, and therefore could act as icons or symbols, pointing back to an essential archetypal form. Natural images, on the other hand, are reflections in surfaces, such as water or a mirror. The appearance of an image in a scrying mirror, for instance, could be seen as a natural immediate imprint of an eternal dimension of reality, because the eternal world contains the temporal and nothing impedes their interpenetration. As Plotinus explains, quote, because of their closeness to something else in the world of real being, i.e. the spiritual world, something like an imprint and image of that other suddenly appears, either by its direct action or through the assistance of soul, or of a particular soul. The shadow or image of the archetype is produced directly and spontaneously through the mirroring process, unlike the artist's creation, which involves planning and construction. But most interestingly, Plotinus emphasizes the co-creative aspect of these spontaneous visions. For, as he says of dreaming nature, quote, my act of contemplation makes what it contemplates. The amphibian soul has a dimension which continuously inhabits the archetypal, unchanging world, whilst its human part is able to translate intimations of this world through visions into the world of the senses, quote, by casting the reflections and shadows which make it up, or by dreaming the dream which it is. Thus, our attention is drawn to the fact that the dreams and visions hold an essential truth, whilst our normal waking consciousness is a mere reflection of an eternal reality. In relation to the art of scrying, then, the more polished or transparent the mirror of the psyche, the more powerful the vision, but the accuracy of its interpretation must depend on the quality of intuition of the individual. This is really well explaining the central work done in, in magical orders like the, like the GD, like this is what we're doing alchemically is trying to cleanse our vessels our, and pow empower our intuitions so that the majority of our work later on in, in the higher grades is scrying work. That's mostly what it is. Not mostly, but maybe mostly. You know what I mean? So that's what we're trying to do is strengthen our intuitions, purify our perceptions and our channels so that we can better engage with reality. Reflections and shadows on water, for instance, 
can be true signs for some, but bewitch and mislead others, those who do not understand them and take them to be ultimate realities, or try to grab and literalize them, fixing them in immutable meanings. The idea that meaning and truth arise from a symbolic attitude is central to esotericism, as it is to poetry, and it is necessary to sidestep our habitual rationalist assumptions if we are to get to the heart of image magic. We also need to suspend our notions of causality, for to ask if images in a shiny surface are produced either by the psyche of the operator or an autonomous non-material being creates an unhelpful dichotomy which can never be resolved one way or the other. The Neoplatonist Iamblichus, 245 to 325 Common Era, refers to theurgic rituals which involve different kinds of light shining on reflective surfaces, and he too is careful to emphasize the difference between the two orders of divine and human action. True divinatory acts, he says, are instigated by the gods, not by men, for it is their transcendent power which illuminates the human imaginative faculty and allows it to glimpse images of another order. As Addy explains, divine illumination emanates from the god's ethereal vehicle to the human's ethereal vehicle, which is wholly taken over by the gods, and the oracular message is pictured on the soul's imagination. These pictures, or images, come from the gods. Thus divine illumination irradiates the vehicle, causing divinely inspired images in it. The divine appearances within the soul vehicle then, set in motion by the god's will, take possession of the imaginative power, the mirror or glass acting as a medium for the practitioner's imaginative faculty. And this is why you see most advanced scryers casting aside all their tools and just using the faculty on its own. Note, uh, see Synesius for a more detailed explanation of the relationship between the astral body and the imagination. This power of the imagination to access an eternal, omniscient realm leads philosophers in this tradition to consider that as the means of prophecy and, interestingly, as daimonic intelligences in its own right. Cornelius Agrippa, 1533, confirmed that prophecy occurs, quote, by the true revelation of some divine power in a quiet and purified mind. For by this our soul receives true oracles and abundantly yieldeth prophecies to us. He echoes Plotinus in his insistence that the imaginative spirit must be pure and undisturbed, quote, so that it may be made worthy of the knowledge and government by the mind and understanding, for such a spirit is fit for prophesying and is a most clear glass of all the images which flow everywhere from all things. For Agrippa, as a Christian magus, it is religion which will lead the mind to the necessary state of purity. The physician Paracelsus, 1493-1541, too speaks of the twofold human soul, part of which can rise above the illusions of the senses and perceive the astral light, or hidden occult properties in all elements of creation. This inner man is the natural man and knows more than the one which is formed of flesh. Paracelsus brings our attention back to the importance of intention and commitment, for imagination springs from desire, he says, and is required for successful clairvoyance. When the act of will ceases to dominate, the imagination is freed 
to act on the invisible substance of the soul. This is also the foundational edict behind Waldorf education practices and why intellectual things like learning to read are held off until emotional and imaginal layers of the aura develop around the age of 9 or 10. Paracelsus reiterates the crucial Neoplatonic distinction between fancy and imagination, the former being the cornerstone of superstition and foolishness, the latter being the faculty which becomes pregnant through desire and may enter into contact with spirits. This metaphor connects us directly to C.G. Jung's theory of active imagination, to which we will now turn. Quote, Looking psychologically brings about the activation of the object. It is as if something were emanating from one's spiritual eye that evokes or activates the object of one's vision. The English verb to look at does not convey this meaning, but the German betrachten, which is an equivalent, means also to make pregnant. And if it is pregnant, then something is due to come out of it. It is alive, it produces, it multiplies. That is the case with any fantasy image. One concentrates upon it and then finds that one has great difficulty in keeping the thing quiet. It gets restless, it shifts, something is added or it multiplies itself. One fills it with living power and it becomes pregnant. From Carl Gustav Jung, Interpretation of Visions, privately mimographed notes, of Mary Foote, 1930. Jung notes that an attitude of active expectation is required for the images brought forth to be examined by the conscious mind, whereas a passive attitude may result in an undiscriminating identification with the mood of the image, such as in a dream. When the mind is active, it is able to start penetrating to the meaning of the symbol, revealed through concentration on it and bringing it alive. Note on the ancient practice of animating images through contemplative exercises, see Dr. Angela Voss's 2006 book. In this way, the divination becomes co-creative. For Jung, the act of scrying would facilitate the arousal of unconscious contents prior to their shaping, interpretation, and subsequent conversion into moral obligation. Furthermore, when a union of conscious and unconscious contents occurs, the transcendent function arises, which, quote, makes the transition from one attitude to another organically possible without loss of the unconscious. In an interesting parallel, Tedlock notes that, quote, whenever a theory of divination has been proposed by diviners, we find not only inductive and propositional thought and intuitive or compositional thought, but also integrative consciousness or ways of knowing. Following Gil- McGilchrist, she reports that this Integrative consciousness can be neurologically related to the interhemispheric connective passageways, thus providing a physical correlate for the function of the act of imagination as go-between. What Jung expresses in psychological terms is a process we can see as intimately related to the Neoplatonic aspiration to access the wisdom of the higher soul. Of course, not all visions in the scrying mirror will necessarily aid this therapeutic endeavor, for often they will appear to be random, obscure, or inconsequential. But the devotee of higher wisdom will be seeking a form of communication which will not only lead to psychic integration, but to spiritual initiation. And this brings us to Jung's contemporary, Henri Corbin, the French historian of religion on the function of the symbolic or visionary image. 
Our scryer is here placed in a teleological context where his or her second sight, or imaginatio vera, tunes in to a supersensible reality, which is not the shadowy, unconscious mind, but a highly delineated, suprarational realm of angelic beings. Steeped in the Islamic mysticism of Suravardi and Ibn Arabi, Corbin's active imagination is a way of gnosis, of eventual participation of the soul in the angelic consciousness. Quote, the whole task consists in purifying and liberating one's inner being so that the intelligible realities perceived on the imaginal level may be reflected in the mirror of the sensorium and be translated into visionary perception. We have already gone a considerable distance beyond the limits imposed by psychology. The vision of the angel does not emerge from the negativity of an unconscious, but descends from the level of a positively differentiated superconscious. James Hillman suggests that the difference between Jung and Corbin may, can be resolved by practicing Jung's technique of active imagination with Corbin's vision. That is, active imagination is not for the sake of the doer and our actions in the sensible world of literal realities, but for the sake of the images and where they can take us, their realization. For Corbin, spiritual hermeneutics involves a simultaneously turning towards the angel and the sensible through engaging with the mundus imaginalis, a world as ontologically real as the world of our senses and the world of the intellect, a world in which spiritual reality is reflected as living image and perceived through the power of the imagination. To go beyond the symbolic representation, to open the eye to the dynamic, eternal reality of spiritual being that constantly informs the material world is for Corbin the way of for modern man to overcome the div divorce between thinking and being that so plagues him. I have attempted in this brief overview to locate the practice of scrying within a wider framework of divinatory hermeneutics, or interpretation models of understanding, to show how it may facilitate a process of reflecting an occult world back to our senses. In my view, how this may happen is in a technical sense, of less importance than why it may happen. It is surely not sufficient to resort to neurological explanations of hallucination, and yet it is deeply problematic in our current intellectual and academic climate to claim truth value for a non-material dimension of purposive intelligence which may interact with our mind in some way. I would suggest that we need to reclaim a philosophical and metaphysical position which acknowledges that there is a middle ground, a mode of cognition in which the mysterious truth of clairvoyant phenomena, such as scrying, is most fully revealed by honoring and engaging the demonic and unifying powers of the imagination. As for why, such a question must surely impinge on the nature and destiny of the human soul, themes which lie beyond the scope of this essay. Well, I have deep love for Angela Voss and hope to share her company more in the future. Stay safe out there, people. Thanks for listening. And uh, subscribe to the podcast for bonus stuff, videos, and to keep it going. Thank you very much. Go to magicwithoutfears.com. Peace. 
Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.